Deliverance from the sermon series, Soul Care, spoken by Dr. Rob Reamer. Well, I don't really need to introduce to you our speaker uh, that's going to be sharing with us today. Rob Reamer is the author of Soul Care. We have been going through this for the past six weeks or so within our small groups. They've been powerful. I know a lot of you have been really um, impacted by the things that we have been learning over these principles. And uh, I just want to be very clear. Um, it's, it's not going to be enough. Uh, Sunday sermons and small groups, although they're great, they're more introductory. And Rob and I were talking several months ago, and he just really believes that in order for our community to really go deeper and experience the seven powerful principles that he talks about, he really wants to encourage our church to attend the Soul Care Conference. Now, he made it specifically for January 14th, 15th, and 16th. There are three days that you can sign up for, and it will change your life. What a way to start off your year. It's going to be interactive. It's going to be online, but it's going to be interactive where you get to connect with him, and there will be group sessions and things like that. And so I want to encourage you to make sure that you sign up for this and make this a priority for you. It will be the best $100 you spend uh, this year, I guarantee you. If finances are an issue, do send me an email. We'll work with you on that, okay? We really will work with you on that. Uh, but make sure you sign up. Uh, early bird registrations will end early next week. And so he texted me yesterday saying that they're going to end next week. So make sure you get the discounted price. Uh, today he's going to share with us a two-part series on the last principle, which is on deliverance. Now, this might be a sermon that you typically ha we're not used to sharing here at Metro, but he's going to be talking about spiritual warfare, about demons, and about how God has called you and I, as people of God, to go and uh, to live out into our spiritual authority and to cast out demons. And so this might percolate a lot of questions maybe, and that's okay. That's okay. And one of the reasons why Rob really wanted to do a soul care conference, because he does believe that the next two Sundays, as he's here speaking to us in this message, he believes that it's going to generate a whole lot of questions and thoughts and other things. And he really does believe that he needs to spend a more dedicated time on this topic with you at the conference. And so I want to encourage you to make sure you sign up for that. But uh, please, please give Rob your undivided attention. He'll be here this Sunday and next Sunday speaking on this really important topic on deliverance. So without further ado, Dr. Rob Reamer. When I was 23 years old, one day I was in my seminary building. I was on a payphone. I'm dating myself, but I'm on a payphone. I was actually talking to my now wife. Then she was my fiance. And I'm chatting with her, and there's this guy who's pacing in front of the phone. So I said to her, hey, somebody's waiting to use the phone. i got to get off the phone. I'll call you later. So I get off the phone. I said to the guy, hey, the phone's available for you to use. And he said to me, actually, I was waiting to talk to you. And I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. Now, back then, the seminary, Alliance Theological Seminary, was on the same campus that the a college was on. So I figured he's probably a college kid, you know, and I sat down with him and all of a sudden he starts talking and I'm telling you, I'm not three minutes into this conversation and I have a thought cross my brain that has never crossed my mind before and that is this, this guy has demons. Now, there were three reasons why this thought came into my mind. First, he was telling me he was hearing voices, and the voices were blasphemous, and the voices were actually telling him to kill someone. Now, that sounded suspiciously dark to me. On top of that, 
He also was so confused, it was hard for him to put three sentences together in a row that had logical, sequential order to them. And I thought, this doesn't feel like mental illness. This feels demonic. And lastly, periodically, while we were in the middle of this conversation, he would just lean his head to the side and growl like, and that just felt rather dark to me. So, you know, I like to say this line, and I believe it to my core, and that is this. Your next level with God lies beyond the boundaries of your current experience. And the only way you can get there is to risk more than you're comfortable with. And I was in that position, that awkward position of realizing this guy probably had something demonic. For the first time in my life, I'm thinking this, what do you do with that? I leaned in. I said to the guy, his name was Rich, I just said to him, Rich, have you ever considered that maybe, perhaps, your problems could be spiritual in nature? He looks at me and goes, you think I have demons, don't you? I'm like, yeah, in fact, I do, and I've never thought it about anybody in my life before. He said, well, John Ellenberger told me I had demons, but I didn't believe him. None of you would know John Ellenberger, most likely. But John Ellenberger was a professor at that time at Alliance Theological Seminary. He had been a missionary in Erie and Jaya. And John and his missionary team had seen an entire tribe of people come to faith in Christ, the Donnie people. These people worshipped pagan deities, and sometimes in their fire ceremony, the demon would physically appear to them out of the fire. And John had to do deliverance on this whole team. Well, listen, at that point in my life, John had more experience in deliverance than anybody I knew. And I just looked at this kid and said to him, Rich, listen, if John says you have demons, you have demons. I said, I tell you what, if you're willing, I'll go talk to John and I'll, I'll, I'll be part of the prayer team and, and, and John will do your deliverance. He goes, all right. So I go in to see John the next day, Dr. John. And listen, this is my first rodeo, right? I have no idea what I'm doing. I walk into John's office the next day. I said to him, uh, hey, Dr. John, I met a friend of yours. He's like, oh, yeah, who's that? And I tell him the guy's name, Rich, whatever his name is. Oh, he leans back, uh, exhales loudly, and he goes, oh, that is the worst case of demons I've ever seen. Now, just, just work with me for a second, okay? The first case of demons I ever noticed was the worst case of demons the guy with the most experience I knew had ever seen. So listen, if I enter into this topic and you feel like, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know anything about this. Well, that's where I started, so there's hope for us, okay? Since then, though, I have done well over 10,000 deliverances. It's not an exaggeration. It's just because I wrote this book called Soul Care, and in it I talk about deliverance ministries. I've been doing soul care conferences around the world, and two, three, four, five hundred people show up at a time, and I'm doing deliverances on crowds of people, and it really adds up in a hurry. 
And I want to talk to you about this concept. You need to understand that I grew up in an evangelical, biblical-centered church. We weren't seeing many charismatic things. We had a doctrine that Jesus was our healer, but I don't ever remember seeing anybody healed in my church. No testimonies about healing. And we didn't ever talk about deliverance. The only time I ever remember anybody talking about something like this was when a missionary would come to town, maybe from Africa or Thailand or some, you know, sort of foreign place with lots of spiritual activity. That's the only time I remember somebody talking about deliverance. I read about it in my Gospels, but I never really heard it talked about except by missionaries. But I want to tell you something. This is not the world I grew up in. The world that we are in right now is dramatically changing. We have lived through one of the most dramatic, even cataclysmic worldview shifts that has ever occurred. And in some ways, it has occurred so dramatically and cataclysmically because it has occurred so rapidly. And this device right here is probably the major reason why our worldview has changed as dramatically as it can. And I just want to illustrate to you how fast and how significant the worldview shift has taken place under our lifetimes. So the easiest way for me to do this is to talk to you about the Scooby-Doo theory. So many of you would have grown up watching Scooby-Doo cartoons. I was born in 1965. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, which were the original Scooby-Doo's, first came out in 1968. The reason why this illustration works is because Scooby-Doo is the longest-running TV show in the history of TV. That's a fact. Did you know that? I'm not talking about reruns. I'm talking about just episodes year after year after year. The last episode of Scooby-Doo actually came out in 2020. There was a movie of Scooby-Doo with real people in it in 2020. But every year since 1968, there's at least been a movie, if not some level of TV show and episodes taking place with Scooby-Doo. That's why it illustrates the change that has taken place in worldview during our lifetime. The 1968 version, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, they went like this. At the beginning of the cartoon, there was a ghost. Scooby, who was a dog, in case you never saw the cartoon, who occasionally speaks with garbled speech. He is a cartoon, remember? And his teenage sleuths, Freddy, Shaggy, Velma, and Daphne, together resolve the mystery. And by the end of the 22 and a half minute episodes, they have revealed to you that the ghost was not really a ghost. It was merely just a villain or a bad guy dressed up as a ghost. That was because it was entrenched in a modern worldview. And modernism taught us that behind every apparent supernatural phenomenon is a natural explanation. That the supernatural and the natural do not really meet and interact. That's modernism. Speed up the clock. You get to about 1993 or 1994. One day I was over a friend's house. He and I were having a piece of cake together, having a cup of coffee together. We're out in the kitchen. His boy was with us, and he's having his cake, having his 
little glass of milk with us, and he gets bored with adult conversation, so he wanders off into the other room. He sits down in front of the TV, and he's watching a TV show eating his cake, right? And I hear from the kitchen, Scooby-Doo. Well, it so happens that Scooby-Doo was my favorite cartoon as a kid growing up, so I wander out into the other room because I'm a little bored with adult conversation too. So I sit down and I got my cake and I'm watching Scooby with the kid. There's a ghost. There's always a ghost. It's Scooby-Doo. But this time at the end of the cartoon, the ghost was still a ghost. And I went, rut row. Someone has just taught an entire new generation of children that behind an apparent supernatural phenomenon is an actual supernatural being. Oh, that changes everything. Listen, I want to push for you how rapidly this has shifted our worldview, okay? The town where I pastored in the south side of Boston, I was on the south shore of Boston, the town that I pastored in was an incredibly educated area. Uh, for those of you who do not know, Boston, uh, Massachusetts area is the, every year, Massachusetts is the most educated state in the Union. This is Boston, right outside of Boston. You know, this is where Harvard is, and Babson, and business schools, and MIT for engineering, and all these tremendous educational centers. This is a thought-leading center of the world. This is Boston, right? Hear me for a second. We had three full-time churches, a Pentecostal church, a evangelical church, and a Catholic church, and two full-time mediums in my town. The town that I was in, the one that I pastored in, this was a town that had, you know, mostly college-educated people. The vast majority of people in my town would have been college-educated. Many of them would have had master's degrees, and a fair percentage, an unusually high percentage for the U.S., had terminal degrees, doctoral degrees, like myself. There were two full-time mediums. Listen, just to, to help me understand this, one of the full-time mediums had her own Disney reality TV show. She had a best-selling New York Times best-selling book. It was called The Medium Next Door. Again, I just want to give you a feel for this, okay? My book, Soul Care, is sold now almost 50,000 copies. Actually, probably just slightly over 50,000 copies. It has never been on the New York Times best-selling list. This lady hit the New York Times bestseller list for spirituality. How many books did she sell? I don't know, but a pile. Okay, I caught you there to say this. You ready? She was in our public high school seven times giving prophetic words to the student body. That never would have happened 10 years ago in the U.S. I walked into the principal's office one day and never thought I'd have to pull this bag out of, you know, out of my bag of tricks, this particular tool. I looked at her and I said to her, I go, this is a violation of the separation of church and state. To which, by the way, she looked at me and said, this isn't spiritual. I'm like, do you want to Google medium with me? I couldn't convince her, went over her head to the superintendent. Superintendent put a stop to it. 
I moved out of the area in 2017, and in the fall of 2017, she was back in the high school doing prophetic words for the student bodies. Listen, man, this is not 1950 America. This is not 1970 or 1980 or 1990 America. The world has dramatically shifted. Let me give you one more evidence of this worldview shift. My father has acute myeloid leukemia. It's kind of a nasty, deadly version of leukemia. I was in the Boston area. My mom and dad lived there near us, just a town away. When he get, gets this disease, well, you know, they took him into Dana-Farber. This is Dana-Farber, right? This is the, the cancer center that is tied to Harvard. This is where they train Harvard-trained oncologists cancer specialist. This, this is an elite school, right? This is the school that doesn't have to submit to the accreditation recommendations of other institutions all submit to. Harvard doesn't play the same games that other people play. You know why? Because they're Harvard. They just put their nose at everybody, you know, thumb their nose and go, we're Harvard. We don't have to play by those rules. And they don't have to. People send their elite to them from all over the world, right? This is Harvard. The entire six weeks my dad was in the hospital getting chemo, medical care, all this stuff, every nurse, doctor, hospital administrator, hospital worker that came into my father's room offered him Reiki as part of his holistic medical care. Now, for those of you who don't know, Reiki is a Japanese word that has to do with spiritual power for healing. Well, listen, there's exactly two sources of spiritual power for healing, Jesus and demonic. And this isn't Jesus-centered. This is Harvard. Do you realize the implication of this? I'm talking about people sending their elite from every country in the world into Harvard, and they're being trained in Reiki as part of holistic medical care. This is not 1950 America. Listen, here's the reality. With more experimentation, there is going to be more demonization. Probably 20 years ago in seminary, I started saying to seminarians, churches that do not move in spiritual power in the future are going to become irrelevant to everyone but the religious, but the Pharisees, because everyone else is going to need freedom, and we're going to have to do the stuff that Jesus did. Listen, spirits are just part of the biblical worldview. In the Old Testament, you see all these ancient deities that are out there, all these surrounding nations have demonic spiritual beings that they're worshiping. There's no deliverance ministry done in the Old Testament. Deliverance ministry actually begins in the New Testament era uh, in the Bible, but in the uh, history books, it begins in the intertestamental period. That is the time from when the Old Testament is being written, after it's finished being written, before the New Testament is written. That's where you see Jewish exorcists on the scene. Deliverance is a biblical concept. Of course, Jesus does deliverance ministries. Uh, Jesus' probably most famous deliverance is the Gadarean demoniac, Mark chapter 5. By the way, you'll notice that he's a man of violence, supernatural strength, breaks chains. 
He's also a cutter, a man that harms himself. Remember, he cuts himself with stones in the passage. Anybody notice with the increase in experimentation that there's an increase in violence and in self-harm in our society? Uh, Jesus also commands the disciples to do deliverance. Matthew chapter 10, he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they go out. We know they have success because in Luke's version of the gospel, even when he sends out the 72, they come back and report, even the demons submit to us in your name. 1 John chapter 4, John calls the tests for the spirits He's writing this letter to the church, right? And he's asking the church to be involved in testing for spirits because there were demonic spirits, and he wanted to make sure that people were getting cleaned up. So deliverance ministry is just a biblical concept. A demon in the Bible is also called an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, an impure spirit. It's just a fallen angel. That's all they are. They are angels that have rebelled against God. There is no redeeming value left in them. They cannot be redeemed. They are utterly evil all the time with no goodness left in them. They seek to kill, steal, and destroy. The bottom line is they want to embody people, and that is because they hate people. And I think that's probably because we've been created in the image of God, but that's what demons do. The big question that everybody always wants to know is, can demons indwell Christians? Can Christians have demons? And let me answer the question. Let me give you my best answer, and then let me give you a whole bunch of reasons why I believe what I believe. Okay, so first, let me give you just a straight-up, shoot, straightforward answer. You ready? Yes. Let me restate it in case you missed it. Definitely. One more time. Absolutely. Listen, I said to you, I've done over 10,000 deliverances. I only do deliverances with Christians. So let me clean up biblical language because I think that's really important. I think one of the places where we've gotten a little messed up in our worldview is because of our biblical language. So the Greek word, if I were to transliterate it from Greek into English, the word would be demonization, okay? Sadly, most of our translations in English translate it demon possession. And that is a terrible translation of the Greek. It's not about possession. See, possession in English implies ownership, right? I'm an author. I own my books. If there's international copyright laws about those books. If somebody in another country tries to rewrite my book, they can't do it without violating international copyright laws because as a creator, I have ownership rights. Well, God is a creator. He has ownership rights. On top of that, Jesus redeemed us with his blood. So we are twice God's possession is a terrible translation. It's not close to the biblical Greek word, and it's not at all what's at stake. What is at stake is, is influence. Let me, let me give you an analogy for this, okay? I say a lot of times your soul is like a suitcase. Well, that suitcase of your soul belongs to God. But here's the reality. Right now, in the suitcase of your soul, there are dirty socks. 
Some of those dirty socks are things like sin. And, you know, 1 John chapter 1 says if you don't admit you're a sinner, you're a liar and you call God a liar. So you and I both have sin, dirty socks, sin in the suitcase of our soul. But not only that, sometimes those dirty socks in the suitcase of the soul, sometimes they're demonic stuff. Now work with me for a second. According to uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, we have everything we need in Christ Jesus for a godly life, for a life of godliness. Is that not true? That's what the passage says. And yet, according to 1 John chapter 1, you and I both have dirty socks called sin in the suitcase of our soul. Now, how can that be? We have everything we need in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, for a godly life, but we still have sin. Well, that's because there's two parts to discipleship. The first part of discipleship is what I would call giving God access. You're a spiritual being in a spiritual world. You're always giving away spiritual access. You don't get to choose if you give away access. You only get to choose to whom you give away access. Well, you know, when you give away access to the enemy of our souls, for example, you pick up something like bitterness in the suitcase of your soul, then you know what? You're giving access to the evil one. But when you pick up forgiveness when someone hurts you, blessing those who curse you, as Jesus tells us to do, you're giving access to God. So God, he shines light into the suitcase of our soul. He reveals to us there's something there, like a dirty sock. He never shines light to make us feel bad. He shines light to get us free. Our job is to say, yes, God, that's true about me, to stand in the light with God and others. This is the first key, access. Here's the good news. When you give access to God, you gain access to the victories of Jesus that have been one for you in the heavenly realms. But you see, then you have to learn how to appropriate the victories. Listen, when you first came to Christ, Jesus didn't eradicate all the sin that is in your life. Again, if you think he did, you're a liar and you call John a liar, God a liar, according to John. No, what he gave you is the access, if you'll give him access, to the victories. But now you have to learn how to use the tools of the kingdom to appropriate them. Well, that's true about sin. Why, therefore, do we think that just because we gave our lives to Jesus, he eradicated all of these other dirty socks in the suitcase that are demonization issues, demons in the suitcase? But it's not something that God actually says. It's some idea we've conjured because of our worldview. Let me give you a couple other reasons why I believe this, okay? John, in 1 John chapter 4, tells the church to test the spirits. Well, hear me for a second. He's not telling you to test the spirits in your, in your neighbor. He's telling you to test the spirits in the church. These are believers he's telling to test the spirit. He's not the only one. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, says, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Well, pause for a second. The context, 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14, is about the prophetic, okay? That is, hearing God's voice, and giving a spontaneous, 
spirit-led utterance. And Paul says that when you give this prophetic word, this utterance that comes from the Spirit, this word of knowledge or wisdom or piece of information that comes from the Spirit to another person, that there's a manifestation of God's presence, verse 7 says that, right in the middle of this thing. Okay, so he's talking about spiritual insight from the spiritual realm that is creating a manifestation of supernatural presence. In the midst of that, he says, listen, you got to test these prophetic utterances. Why? Because not every single one of them is from the Lord. Oh, there's spiritual presence with spiritual utterance going on, but it ain't always Jesus in your midst. That's what Paul's saying. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, because Paul was smart. He knew what was going on. Let me give you an example. Places like Corinth, places like Ephesus, etc. These were pagan cities. They were pluralistic, syncretistic societies, much like the U.S. has become today. They worship many different deities, and when Paul comes around preaching, for example, in Ephesus, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, they add Jesus to the plethora of deities that they're already worshiping. Now, how do I know that? Because I read Acts 19, and it says so right in there, okay? Read the text. Let me tell you the story. Remember that they worshiped 50 different deities in Ephesus. The chief deity that they worshiped was Artemis of the Ephesians. By the way, they called her Lord and Savior, exact same Greek words that Paul uses for Jesus, All of a sudden, Paul preaches Jesus, Lord and Savior. They add Jesus to the midst of their deities until one day a little event occurs that changes everything. The event is the seven sons of Sceva incident recorded in Acts chapter 19. This is the one where the Jewish exorcists are trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And this guy who is demonized has supernatural strength, like the Gadarene demoniac, jumps on him, beats the tar out of him. And the guy, all these seven exorcists, Jewish exorcists, run off naked, battered, and bloodied. Okay? Listen, two things resulted according to Acts 19. First, the community, the non-believers in the community, had reverence and awe for the name of Jesus. They went, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is not one among many. He's different. But the second thing that happened according to Acts chapter 19, the believers got together all of their magic sorcery scrolls that they had still been practicing in secret. And they burned them. By the way, according to Dr. Luke, it is 50,000 days wages of magic scrolls. Translation, that is about 12 to 14 million dollars worth of magic scrolls that got burned that day. Listen, you know what? Paul knew that they were syncretists. He knew that many of them had not given up their magic practices, their secret, other religious practices in places like Ephesus and Corinth. So you know what he's saying? Listen, I know there's still some demonic stuff in the suitcase of these people's souls. They still need to appropriate the victory of Jesus through deliverance. But they've got to come into the light to give him access. And that's what Paul understood. 
Listen, if demons were cast out upon conversion, then Jesus never would have needed to do deliverance ministry. He just would have cast out demons by bringing people to himself. Conversion, that would have taken care of it. Let's talk about church history for a second. Whenever you're creating a theology, you have to look at the biblical picture, which there's not a single verse in the Bible that says Christians can be demonized, and there's not a single verse in the Bible that says Christians cannot be demonized. So you're creating a, a, a theology out of a lot of different biblical understanding. But you also, when you're creating theology, have to look at what the early fathers were thinking, what church history was thinking. So let me take it way back to some of the early fathers, okay? There's a guy named Hippolytus. He wrote a book called The Apostolic Tradition. And what he's doing in the book is he's, he's taking the apostles' teaching and he's talking about how the early church implemented the teachings of the apostles. In that book, he says that the way they did it in his region there, the way they did deliverance ministries, appropriated this particular teaching of the apostles, was they did it as part of baptism. So somebody would come to faith in Christ, as part of their baptism rites, the first thing they would do is teach them monotheism. That is, there's only one God. Remember, they're worshiping the plethora of deities. The second thing they would do was they would teach them holiness, how to walk in step with the Spirit, how to walk in the light as God is in the light, etc. The third thing they would do is they would do prayers of exorcism, deliverance ministries. Then they would take them into the waters of baptism. They would renounce Satan and all their previous ties to Satan, declare their sole allegiance to Jesus, and then they would dunk them under the water, bring them back, and do one final sealing prayer of exorcism over them. They did deliverance ministries as part of discipleship. So I want to read a passage in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. Let's take a look at this passage. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now just pause there for a second. He cast out a demon from a guy who can't speak. The guy speaks and they want a sign from heaven? Wow. Religious people often resist the power of God. Look at verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. I'm just going to say, if I were an underliner in my text, I'd underline the word house because it's a key word that threads the entire passage together. I'll get to it in a second. Verse 18, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? so then they will be your judges. Jesus here is testifying to the fact that Jewish exorcists were having success driving out demons. I think the difference was in methodology. They did it through ceremony or ritual, but not Jesus. He does it with authority, which is what he, 
he's pointing to next in verse 20. But he says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that's authority, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And now he's going to explain how he can do it by authority here in verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, there's that key word again, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, divides up the plunder, and divides up the spoils. Okay, so listen, here's... Here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying Satan is the strong man, but he is the stronger man. The reason why Jesus can drive out demons by authority is because he is the stronger one. That's his point. That's why he doesn't need ceremony or ritual. He's the stronger one. The house here, obviously, is the person. The possessions here are obviously the demons. And Jesus is describing how he can do it by authority. Verse 23, he's appealing to these people that are resistant to him. He says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not scatter with me, uh, gather with me, scatters. He's actually appealing for them to repent. Verse 24 is not a parable. Verse 24, he is describing the way spiritual reality works. And this is what he says. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I have left. And they want to go back to the person that they've been kicked out of, okay? Verse 25, when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean, put in order. In other words, the person's been delivered. Then it goes, takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there, and the final condition of the person is worse than it was at first. Listen, here's what I think Jesus is teaching. If Jesus does not come and live in the house, in you, if you are not a believer, in other words, then you are not protected from reinfestation. Listen, when I read this passage, I think Jesus is trying to encourage us not to do deliverance on non-believers because they could be vulnerable to worse infestations with worse spirits. Instead, this is to be part of discipleship. As you're giving God access and gaining access to the victories of Jesus and learning how to appropriate those victories, you can walk free and live free. That is Jesus' point. Let me end this with one final story. I was teaching a class one day down at the seminary. I was still a pastor in Boston area, but I was down there adjuncting, and I was teaching this class. As I was teaching this class, it was kind of a Friday-Saturday class. It had two weekends. The second weekend, Friday night after class, this kid comes up to me. He's in his late 20s, probably. He's a big, huge guy, like 6'6", 350, really big, Okay. He comes up to me and he says to me, every time you come down here and talk, man, he goes, I feel things inside of me moving. He said, they hate you. I looked at him. His name was Danny. I said to him, Danny, you know what that is, right? He goes, I'm starting to figure it out. I'm like, it's demonic, man. 
I said, I'll tell you what, tomorrow we're going to do a ministry time in the afternoon. I said, when we go to do this ministry time in the afternoon, I'm just going to ask anybody who wants prayer to stand up. Just stand up right where you are. When you stand up, you know, I'll make sure you get free. We'll get rid of those things. He looks at me, 6'6", 350. He's been in the gangs in Harlem, super tough guy, right? Looks at me and he goes, I'm afraid. I'm like, what are you afraid of a little demon for? Come on, you got Jesus in you. He's like, all right, I'll stand up. I'm so good. So we go to class the next day. I'm teaching, you know, and it's getting to be the ministry time. I must have told a story about a deliverance. I wasn't teaching about deliverance, but I must have used an illustration. So anyhow, these two guys who are sitting like right in the front are arguing with me vociferously, vigorously, passionately, angrily that Christians can't be demonized. Listen, I don't argue this stuff anymore. Like, you have no idea what I've seen. So I don't bother arguing. I joke with my wife. I say, I'm too busy casting out demons to chase phantoms. I'm not chasing these kinds of conversations around in my life. You're never going to convince me. I've seen too much. And truth be told, I've thought through this a lot. So I don't argue. I just looked at him. I said to him, listen, guys, you don't have to agree with me. That's fine. Don't worry about it. There's lots of godly people on your side, but I'm not going to be convinced either, okay? Of course, what they don't know is the guy that's sitting right next to these two just to their, you know, to, to their right, is Danny, who's their classmate and friend, and who's utterly chuck full of demons, really bad demons. I go, let's go to ministry time. If anybody wants prayer, please stand. And I just let people stand up all over the room. There's, you know, I don't know, 75 people in the room. A bunch of people stood up all over the place. And literally, this is all I pray. You ready? I go, come Holy Spirit. And when I said it, Danny levitated about four feet off the ground and flew right in front of those two guys all the way across the room, hit the wall on the other side of the room, and dropped at the feet of a friend of mine who's an African-American, Kelvin. And when it lands on Kelvin's feet, I'm telling you, he turned completely white. Okay, as a matter of fact, Kelvin is in the room when I've told this story, and he always nods his head, and he did, man, completely white. I wish I captured it on video. It was the only time I ever saw what he looked like as a white guy. And he's completely ghost white over there on the other side of the room. And I looked at him, and I said, you, cast that thing out. And he's like, oh, oh man. By the way, these two guys who've just been arguing with me, Christians can't have demons, literally fell out of their chair and yelled, oh, God, help. It was like the first time in their life they ever really prayed. Listen for a second. There are a bunch of people in the church that need freedom. And our Western world view has messed up our biblical lenses. And we're leaving people in bondage because we don't understand the things that Paul understood and ministered with authority and power in the local churches of his day and age. And we got more people today that are like people from Ephesus than we do from people from 1950 or 1980. We've got to return to this ministry to the church. Now, for some of you, you know, you listen to this talk and you're like, oh, no, I might have demons. I'm really scared. Listen, can I tell you something? Jesus isn't nervous. It's really one of my favorite things about Jesus. He's not nervous about you today, and he can get you free. 
So don't let them bully, intimidate you, all that. Just get your eyes off yourself, off the enemy. Put your eyes on Jesus because he is the king and he is the king alone. There is no competition for his throne room. Next week, I'm going to talk to you one more time, and I'm going to talk to you about how do you know if you have spirits and how do you get rid of them. This week, just get your eyes on the king. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ. I am with Peter. You have given us everything we need in the heavenly realms for life of victory. I'm with Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He said we have every spiritual blessing we need in the heavenly realms. All the keys to victory are there. But sometimes, Lord, because of our worldview, we miss out on some of the keys. We miss out on some of the tools, and people live in bondage. May it not be true for Metro Church. May it not be true for us as individuals. May we be the kind of people that do the kind of things that Jesus did. You said we would. John 14, 12, we would do the stuff you did, the works of the kingdom, even greater things than these. So may we be those kinds of people that do those kinds of works for the sake of the king, the advance of his kingdom, and to the glory of his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how did God speak to you? Uh, I'm sure God spoke to you in so many different ways can you just pull out your communication card? You can get it on your app. You can go to emetro.org slash Sunday. There are several next steps that we would really like you to take. And so here, here they are. The first one is just, I'm committing my life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. If you've never done that, please do check that off. And uh, we will get back to you. We promise we will. And we'll try to connect with you, help you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We also would love to celebrate with you and teach you really what that means and, and how you can enter into this new life with Jesus Christ. So make sure you check that off. Second, I'm going to receive prayer today through Metro's virtual prayer rooms. Like I told you before, um, these rooms are set up for you. And uh, I want to encourage you to really go to emetro.org slash pray and, uh, and be prayed for by a pastor. You can even do that right now if you'd like. All right. Uh, please send me more information about the virtual soul care conference from January 14th to the 16th. If you're interested in getting more information, uh, please check that off. Also, if you look in the chat room, the link should be there in just a moment. One of our staff members will put up the link so that you can just click on it and you can register right now, all right? Uh, fourth, I will generously give to the Christmas offering. We're gonna take a Christmas offering up in just a moment, but that you would really generously give. If you did not bring that today, I want you to pray about it. I really do, I want you to pray about what you can give and give generously during this season to the Christmas offering, all right? Fifth, uh, please send me the link to attend Metro's midweek Worship and prayer services on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. We have a Wednesday evening service. It's virtual again, but if you're interested, it's powerful. People who come really get blessed by it. Please check that off. We're going to give you the link and send you that link on how you can get connected to us. All right. Also, as Friday mornings for 6 a.m., I'm not a night person, so for me, the mornings work really well for me. Every Friday, 6 a.m., a tribe of us get together and we pray for our church and pray for each other. All right, we have the Friday morning prayer meetings. I want to encourage you, if you want to join us for that, just check that off, and we'll make sure to get back to you on that. And lastly, uh, we're, every year we do Angel Tree. And uh, it's no different this year. If you would like to give a gift to uh, a family, uh, to a child whose parents are incarcerated, mother or father is incarcerated, uh, please sign up for this. It will be wonderful. You'll make... You really impact uh, somebody's life this Christmas season. So just check that off. We'll make sure to get back to you with the information and how you can give a, pe a present during this Christmas season to a family, to a child 
uh, whose parent is incarcerated. All right, so please make sure you check that off. We'll get back to you with more information. 